Amen and amen and amen. Remain uh, standing here for just a few more uh, moments as I read for you my text today. My sermon today is called Taming the Tongue Even in Prayer. Say that with me. Taming the Tongue Even in Prayer. My text is from Psalm 39 verses 1 through 5. It's it's not a long psalm. It's uh, 12 verses long, but we are going to read our text from the first five, and we will preach the entire psalm today. Let us begin. I don't have the heading on here, um, but we will cover the heading. Uh, a psalm of David, and uh, he gave it to the chief musician. We'll cover that, but I don't have that here in this version in my text. I'm sorry. So I will begin at the first words after the inspired heading. I said, I will take heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. I was dumb with silence. I held my peace even from good. And my sorrow was stirred. My heart was hot within me while I was musing the fire burned. And then... I spake with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end and the measure of my days. What is it that I may know how frail I am? Behold, thou hast made my days as yet a handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have come to the place uh, in the service, the special place where we're asking you to illuminate your word as we rightly divide Psalm 39 and understand what this offering of your word says to us today. I pray that you would open our ears to hear, that you would uh, turn on the lights of my understanding as the preacher that I would speak your words and and not my own, not my opinions or my thoughts, but I would direct people to your word and that your Holy Spirit would speak right now. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Have you ever thought you you were doing good? You thought you were in control of yourself in a given circumstance? Thought you knew some difficulty that you were about to face and you kind of tried to bear yourself up for it. Like I'm getting ready to do this, but I got it. I'm not going to mess up. I can handle this. Okay. You ever, anybody ever do this for yourself? You kind of gear yourself up. All right. I'm going to go talk to mom. I'm going to go talk to dad. I'm going to go talk to my brother. I'm going to go talk to my employer. You know, Steve was recently, you know, aren't you glad Steve, you didn't go I can't believe you people treated me like trash. You know, like uh, you could have ruined everything. But instead, you were able, uh, I hope, or maybe that is what you said and that's how you got your promotion. I'm not really sure. But, uh, but you understand what I'm saying? You gear yourself up and, and you start thinking, okay, I got this. I can, I can do this, you know. But in the end, you just, you didn't, you didn't do it. You, you really let yourself down. You ever said to yourself, all right, I'm not going to get mad. I'm not going to be hurt. I'm not going to say something 
I'm not going to say anything. But before you know it, you actually said more than you, than you would have ever said if you had tried not to say anything. Right? I'm not saying anything. I'm not saying nothing. How many, how many of you have kind of said that? I'm not saying nothing. Right? I think often I, you know, I know myself better than I do, right? Uh, we're not as self-aware maybe as we think we might be. And that's why it's good to have people in our lives who love us and help us when we get way over our heads and they help us not to do dumb things. As blood-bought new creations on our way to glory, we want to do the right thing, right? What What do we even say in our conviction of sin? Our desire is to do what is right, but we lack the ability to carry it out. We're not setting out to sin most of the time. We're often convinced in ourselves we can deal with the temptation. And so, instead of doing what Joseph did when Potiphar's wife grabbed a hold of him, remember what he did? He just like let his coat be grabbed and he he runs off, you know, and he leaves his coat in her hands. He runs for his wife from temptation. But we don't do that. We're like, I can handle this. I mean... All she's doing is fixing my jacket, you know. Uh, all she's doing is adjusting my tie. Next thing you know, she's planting a big kiss on his mouth. The deal is, is we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Temptation is like that. That's why the Bible tells us to run from it, to flee from it. Why? Because we think we got it. We think we're going to be okay, but we're not. We think we're strong enough. What does the Bible said? He that thinks he stands, take heed lest he, lest he fall. Sometimes that's when you know you're going to mess up is when you go, I'm not going to mess up. I got this. Now the sins are not always Potiphar's wife type of sins. Sometimes there are other sins that are more subtle. They overtake us. We think we're strong enough to forbear our brother or sister in Christ, our wife or our husband or a very close friend. It's like, you know, they're getting under your skin. They're kind of bothering you. You I got this. I'll be okay. I'm not going to get mad that they're taking advantage of me, that they're, you know, walking all over me. I'm, you know what? I don't get offended. I'm not hurt. I never get hurt. I, I got this. I mean, you know, and you, and, and you think you're bearing up well, but before you know it, what happens, guys? You get overtaken by the situation. This is really what the psalm, the heart of Psalm 39 is about. It's about when you think you've got it, when you think you're not going to sin, when you think you're strong enough to deal with it, and you try to deal with it on your own, and in particular, it's a sin of your mouth. I'm not going to say anything. Right? David is confessing his sins and he's wanting to remember how he failed God. Now, once again, I think we talked about this last week. Who wants to put a plaque up? Like we've talked about living lives of remembrance. We remember the good things God did. Who is taking time to remember the dumb things we've done? You know, that might be just as important. David does it again and again. He doesn't just write, God gave us victory over our enemies. What David does in the psalm is he writes Psalm 51 to remind us how he sinned. Remind us how God dealt with him. Psalm 39, it's the same thing, only it's a different sin. This time it's not Bathsheba. 
This time it's not killing Uriah the Hittite. This time it's he's sinning against God in prayer. And the way he's talking about God to other people. We think, okay, no matter what they do, I'm not going to get angry with them. I'm not going to be a part of this fight that they're instigating. But before we know it, we're bitter against them. We're dishonoring those God has called us to honor. We might even be yelling at them and doing the same thing that they're doing or even worse. This is the heart of Psalm 39. David's sin was not against his wife, though, or one of his generals at court with him. It was against God. We don't often think of this kind of sin that we need to flee from. I mean, how many of you, like, you know, we know we need to flee from Potiphar's wife when she's saying, come here, baby, for a big kiss, right? We know to run from that, right? We know to run from that. But who thinks that they've got to literally run from sinning against God in your own prayers? We might even not even be aware that you could do that. I've heard people talk about how they talk to God and they, they hold this up as uh, an example. Oh, God doesn't mind how you talk to him. It's fine. I mean, he's your buddy. You can say anything you want. Bring your complaints to God. Tell God how mad you are at him. Folks, I'm telling you right now, this psalm is letting us know that's not what we do. God is not to be complained about. Lord, you're not taking care of me. Lord, you're not meeting my needs. Lord, you know, what, is, you know, what is going on is unfair. Guys, if you talk to God like that, you should be ready for correction. David knows this. He knows it's a sin. I don't know what he said. And that's what's interesting about the psalm. It doesn't say what he said, but he said something to God or about God to someone else. And it was a sin and he knew it. It's so much so he wrote a song so he wouldn't do it again. Did you even think it was possible to be praying to God, taking your petitions to your heavenly father and that you could sin in doing that? Did you ever even think that that was possible? Apparently we can. So let's go to Psalm 39, and it's actually 13 verses. And let's hear this 13-verse song that the Holy Spirit sent us to teach us to keep us from this very sin. So we'll start off in verse 1. And here in my verse-to-verse uh, part of my sermon we will get the inspired introduction. To the chief musician, even unto Jeduthun, a psalm of David. Once again, we're reminded that this is not just, uh, these are not just words, this is a song. You know, singing is not talking, right? The hills are alive. That's singing, right? The hills are alive. That's a whole other thing, right? With the sound of music. No, you can hear, there's something more to it, right? So to the chief musician, a psalm of David, I said, I will take heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. So the part here to the chief musician, Jeduthun, Jeduthun was one of the chief singers of, uh, in, to, of whom God's word makes mention actually several times. You can read about him. He's basically mentioned in a list in uh, 1 Chronicles 9.16. 1 Chronicles 16, 38, 41, and 42. Uh, 
if you have a bunch of children and you're naming them all with the letter J, this is not a name I've actually heard anyone name their child, but Jeduthun, you know, maybe they just call them Jed. Maybe that's where Jed comes from. I'm not sure. Jedediah, this is Jeduthun. So any, if you have a plan, I know we're going to have a lot of children in this church. And just for those of you that like the same letter theme, this might be a good one. Uh, he was known and his family were known in music. And, and just like some you know, great families in history, uh, their entire family, uh, the Bach family, the Beethoven family, were these incredible musicians that went on for generations bringing forth beautiful Music And so Jeduthun, his family were known as the singers at court and they were musicians. And so this was, this song was for him to, to, to sing or, uh, or it may be not even referred to him specifically, but kind of the household of Jeduthun. Okay. I just thought that's a little extra. Okay. So he says, after he presents this song to be sung by this person, this chief musician, he says, I said, I will take heed to my ways that I send not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. David begins Psalm 39 with how the whole affair started. The whole thing that inspired him to write this song. It starts off with him talking to himself. How many of you talk to yourself? Don't we do this? Isn't this kind of silly? You know, it's, it's, it's not silly. In fact, it is something that we need to do. Sometimes... You can really talk yourself into some, doing something really good or talk yourself out of doing something bad. Some people even have the little joking thing, you know, where they have the one on the one shoulder, you know, the angel on one shoulder and the, the little demon on the other shoulder, you know. But oftentimes, more oftentimes than not, you're not really dealing with angels and demons here. You're just talking to yourself. So David begins to talk uh, to himself. Sometimes before I'm going to make an important phone call, I do this. I'm like, okay, okay. I don't want to seem too excited. I don't want to talk too much. I, got, I need to get right to the point. You guys ever do this? All right. David is doing this and he says to himself, um, I'm not going to do this. How, how many of you ever talk to yourself about temptation? You're like, I'm not doing that. No, 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 no. I'm not doing that. Sometimes I will literally say to myself, and, and this is kind of a theme, maybe you could adopt this because it kind of works for me, uh, that, you know, my flesh or the devil, whatever, bring this temptation to me. And I will go, that's not going to be my story. Uh-uh. Think again. I'm not doing that. And I'll say it out loud. I, I have found that by declaring these things, it's kind of helpful for me personally. I'm like, no, 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 no. No, I am not going to punch Nathaniel in the nose, even though I want to. When I see him, I'm not going to punch him in the nose. You know, I, that Benjamin, he's got me so mad. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't hurt him. Don't hurt him. More often than not, it's probably him talking to himself. Don't hurt dad. Dad's going to drive me crazy. I'm trying to help dad. And uh, I want to kill dad because dad was, is driving me crazy. Sometimes we have to talk ourselves into or out of things. And in this case, he's talking to himself. Now, what's funny is he's talking to himself in a self-deceived way. You know what? I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to speak out loud what I'm thinking. That's really what David's saying. I'm not going to say this. I'm not going to complain to God. I'm not going to complain about God. I'm not going to do it.
David's telling, he's reassuring himself that he's not going to allow his tongue to get the better of him. He does not want to sin with his mouth. Now, is that something you can relate to? You ever just, it's almost like it's, it's a separate part of your body. Like it, that it's got its own little, and before you know it, blah, something, and you're like, whoa, you know, you, you really hurt them. You, oh, oh no, I can't believe I said that. You, you guys, Gideon is real. Gideon, wow, you ever do this, Gideon? You're like, I'm doing it, Dad. I can't believe you're right. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's kind of like something exploded there. You know, something went, something got out of control. Now, it's something we can relate to. He says that he's going to put a bridle on his tongue. Isn't that kind of a funny picture? You know, you, you put a bridle on a, a wild horse, you know, so you can lead it around. And he's like, I'm going to, I am going to tame my tongue. What does James tell us? We just read it earlier. For the tongue can no man tame. I'm actually going to read some of that for you. First off, let's talk about the tongue in general, okay? There's really no way to go to this passage in James chapter 3. That, uh, there's no way not to go there. You know, I, we had it in our New Testament reading here from James 3, but we got to talk about it. Uh, James 3, 1, for in many things we offend all, but if any man offends not in word, the same is a perfect man and able to bridle the whole body. I, I really think that James is actually calling back to this psalm. He's realizing that if I could put a bridle on my tongue, I could probably bridle what? And probably bridle my entire body. We don't realize how much sin we commit with our mouths. The things we say to people, the things... We say, in this case, we're going to see not just to people, but even to God. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths. What are bits? Bits are part of the, they're part of the bridle. That we want horses to obey us. We want to turn about the whole entire horse's body. We put the bit in there and it's only in its mouth, but what does it do? It turns the whole horse. You know how big a horse is? Horses are huge. And you can turn a whole horse by just controlling his mouth. Isn't that a great picture of us? We don't often think of how important it is to control our mouths. Behold, and he gives a few examples on how little things control big things, right? Behold, ships, even though they're so great and they're driven by, you know, fierce winds that would blow a house down. Yet what do we do? We have this little thing on the, under the water that it's not very big, right? And, and, and whenever they turn it, the, the, the boat goes that direction. How is it that something so big, right? Ships, when they're so great, driven by fierce winds, yet are they turned about a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even the tongue, everybody say, even the tongue. Even the tongue is a little member, and it boasteth great things. Oh, behold, how great matter a, a little fire kindleth. The other night we built a bonfire in our side yard. Our neighbors had a food truck outside and, and they were selling and uh, we had this giant pile of brush. All we had to do was light one match, one little tiny spark, you know? And we had a fire 20 feet high in our side yard. Oh, what a little tiny thing, a little tiny. It, fire always starts small, right? But it can burn a whole forest fire down. That's what they're saying. The tongue, even though it's little, it's powerful, it's destructive. And instead of trying to control our whole self, if we would start with trying to control our mouths, 
And, you know, the Robinettes, we talk a lot. And so learning to control our mouths, you know, when mom and dad ask you to do something, what do you say? You know, uh, when someone does something you don't like, how do you respond? When, when you're upset, when you're grumpy, what, how, what, how are you, what are you doing with your mouth? And the deal is, is if you can control your mouth, you might find that you could be a peacemaker in your home. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So the tongue among our members, it defiles the whole body. Isn't it? You know, you're, you haven't done anything wrong. You didn't like go up and, you know, poke your mother in the eye. Or you didn't, you know, go steal, you know, uh, get, open Nathaniel's wallet because he's got all kinds of money. And pull out all of his money and walk on with it. You didn't do that. All you did is go, nah, rah, 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 rah. that's it. That's all you did. And now what? You, the whole house is in an uproar, right? Now, I'm not looking, you guys, that probably didn't happen at your house, but it happens at our house. The tongue of fire, a world of iniquity, so the time, it defiles the whole body. It sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on the fire of hell. Everybody say hell. What are you saying? I, you know, I, I don't want to say in a sermon, but a, you know. <laughs> no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to bridle my tongue. It does a whole lot. Let's just say that. The tongue can do a whole lot of bad. But you know it can do a whole lot of good. See, a horse can do great damage if it wants to. But if you get a horse under control, you can ride it. You can plow. You can enjoy it. It does a world of good, right? And the tongue is just like that. Every kind of beasts and birds and serpents and creatures of the sea, they can be tamed. And have been tamed of mankind. But the tongue, everybody say, the tongue... Can no man tame. It is unruly, evil, full of deadly poison. Now, James is not telling you this to be, to, to, to be hopeless, like telling you, oh, well, you can't control it. He's saying it's a very hard thing to do. And it's, it's really something we should put our efforts to doing. Because what can God do the impossible? Can God do the very difficult in us? Absolutely he can, right? So this is not a work you can do on your own. You need the help of the Holy Spirit. Therewith with our mouth, right? The tongue can no man tame. It's unruly, evil, and full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father. Therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing, my brethren. These things ought not so to be. Does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries and vine figs? Or can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh? He's explaining to us the importance of our tongue. So we can't be reminded enough of how important it is to do our best to keep our mouths from sin. We all struggle with this. God has given us our mouths to sing his praises, to encourage others, to spread the good news of the gospel. And if we give our tongues to so many things other than this and allow them to be used to hurt others and to dishonor those God has given us that we are supposed to honor, then we sin. In this psalm, it was not the sin in general, however, that David was dealing with. We will see he is most concerned about sinning with his mouth against God. Say, sinning with my mouth against God. As we see at the end of verse 1, it is more particularly sinning against God with his mouth. And by doing so before the ungodly, that would give them reason to blaspheme. You know... People that don't know God are watching you. 
You know, I, I'm not saying that, you know, Luke's neighbor is any more ungodly than any, but doesn't Luke have a, a, a neighbor we know as, a, as an unbeliever, right? He's a, a Muslim, right? He's Buddhist, okay. So, Luke, that man's watching you. That man's listening to you. Imagine if you were in your garage doing a little bit of work and he's out there with you and you're spending time with him and, and you're just like, you know what? God is not fair. Like, Luke, don't ever say something like that. I, I know you would not want to say something like that, but this is really what is going on. David is interacting with people that are not believers they're not Jews, apparently. They're wicked, or maybe they're even wicked in this midst. People that, it's like casting your pearls before swine or whatever it is that David's doing. David says before the wicked, he doesn't want those who don't know God to be able to blaspheme against God because of what he says. Be, they're always watching. Oh, those people say they're Christians. Those people say they believe in God. Those people, you know, in Psalm 22, what are they saying? He believed in God that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delights in him, right? It's they're waiting on the side. They're looking. They were watching Jesus, and they were hoping he would cry out against God and say something horrible. And if he did, they would have said, see, see, see what kind of guy he is. That's what they do. That's what the wicked do. They blast. There's not really any God. He doesn't really serve the Lord. David is worried that his words are going to reach even to the ears of unbelievers and that the things that he says are going to disparage his wonderful heavenly father. They, by seeing him in sin, have a reason to disparage God. David does not want to do this. And so he's talking to himself about this in verse 1. Now, verse 2 tells us what action he took to ensure himself. This is, this is a what not to do. Because the action he takes here doesn't work for him. In fact, it works against him. He said, so here's what I did. I didn't want to sin. I didn't want to say something bad. So you know what I did? I didn't say anything. I was dumb with silence. I held my peace even from good. And I'm telling you, you can almost see this on David's face. He's going... Right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, have you ever been so worked up, Beetle, that you know you shouldn't say anything? And you're, in fact, it's not just a matter of saying something bad. You don't want to say anything lest you go off the rail and say something bad, right? I ain't saying nothing. Now, David, knowing how hard it was to stop the stream once it starts, he endeavors to dam up all of his words behind a wall of silence. Now, it kind of makes sense, right? If we don't talk at all, if I don't say anything, I can't say anything I'll regret. This will be my solution. I just won't talk. Someone goes, I know what I'll do. Never the rest of my life am I going to say anything. And that way I never sin. Try it out. See if that works for you. Have you ever done this? I have. I've walked in a situation where I'm worked up and I'm like, Now, body language says a lot. You, you might think that you have your mouth shut. You might go, I'm holding it back, I'm holding it back. But everyone's going, what in the world is wrong with him? He's... And you're, I'm not saying nothing. I'm not, I, I, 
I got it. I got it. Somehow the mere act of biting our tongues or not saying something seems actually to make you think more about what you're not saying. I'm not saying anything about what? Because I'm mad. I'm not mad. I'm, I'm not saying it. And I tell you, I'm not saying anything. And inside you're just like, blah, blah. And you're like, you know. There's a face, as I said, that comes with this, you know. And I was just making it. You know, maybe you, yours is not quite that exaggerated. Maybe you just, maybe you're just driving down the road with your husband and you're going, you know, oh, please. Right. That's what we do. I, I even wrote this down. Purse your lips tightly together to where you almost get a cramp in your face trying to hold it like that. That's why I literally wrote this down that I was supposed to do this in case I couldn't remember what the face was myself. Okay? And then I said, make a noise like it's getting louder. You know? Now, how many times have you determined you weren't going to say a word, but doing that, you ended up blowing up and saying a hundred more words than you would have ever said had you just started talking anyway, right? All your emotions at once come out You don't get to temper them. They just explode. It's a picture that David is painting here with the words of the song. Verse three, my heart was hot within me. And while I was musing, the fire burned. I mean, this is exactly what the song is talking about. I kept my mouth shut. I said, I'm not going to say a word. I'm not even going to say anything good. And I'm not going to sin. And and he says, "My, my heart began to be hot within me. And while I was musing, the fire burned. And then I spake with my tongue. Now, we, you can read this with King James, uh, you know, then I spake with my tongue. I, I, really think it, I, I really think it should be kind of read like this. My heart was hot within me. And while I was musing, the fire burned and it burned. I mean, I, I, if the music, if they had music to this, it would be a. And while I was musing, I burned. And then I spake with my mouth. Ah! Because I think that's what really happened. So I don't know how you do that musically. Those of you that are musical, you can, you can give that a try. If you're listening to this, you know, uh, whatever, and you don't know me, you're like thinking that pastor, he's completely insane. He's screaming and yelling and making noises. That's what this psalm is. I'm doing it because that's what the psalm is doing. My heart was hot within me while I was musing. The fire burned and I spoke with my tongue. See how David's emotion began to rise in his forced silence. The Bible teaches us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth does what? It speaks. And in this case, it was going to speak no matter how hard David tried to hold it back. Folks, let me tell you right now, you cannot do this. You cannot hold it back. If your heart is feeling it and believing it and it's plaguing you, you can try to hold your mouth all you want, but you won't be able to do it. You'll, Because as soon as you're done, you'll be like, oh, yes, I know it was horrible. I know I shouldn't have said it. I know I exploded with all my emotions, but I'm just, I don't even care how much trouble it cost. I just had to say it. That's, that's what happens in us. You see, the problem was, is his heart was wrong. Is God ever unjust? Is God ever not working out something for our own goodness? Is God arbitrarily just, you know, uh, chance is happening to you and, 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 and God isn't a part of this bad thing going. No, God's a part of all of it. 
God reminded me one day that when I was complaining about my financial needs not being met, that what I was doing is I was complaining about him. God's word says, if I seek first the kingdom of God, which I was trying my best to do, that he would make sure all the things were added to me. And when I was saying I didn't have what I needed, what I was saying is God wasn't giving me enough. Guys, God gives us just exactly what we need. That doesn't mean we can't ask him for things. But I do remember saying out loud, you know, I'm poor and I don't have enough. That's not true. God gives me whatever I have. And what I have from God is enough. Everybody say, whatever God gives me is enough. He's my provider. Even if he provides for me. You know, Job is trying to comfort his wife. His wife is complaining. He said, we, all of our lives we've received good of the Lord. Shall we not receive evil also? Job understood that everything that came to him came from God. He thought by not saying anything good or bad, he would stop what was springing up inside him, but he was wrong. And the problem was he needed what change, guys? He needed, he needed a heart change. The mouth can only be tamed when the heart is changed. That's something worth writing down. The, heart, the mouth can only be tamed when the heart is changed. He was evidently angry with God, perhaps feeling like God was not being fair to him or dealing with him wrongly. Obviously, everybody say, obviously, that's ridiculous. But it's not really foreign to us because I think sometimes we really believe that. We really are guilty of thinking dumb things like this, that, you know, God's not, God doesn't care about me. God's not going to, you know, provide this thing in my life. God is not going to, to do this thing for me. God doesn't care. God's just going to leave me. He's going to abandon me. Really? That's goofy thinking, but it's not really foreign to us. We all kind of sometimes, especially when we're sad or when we're disappointed or when what we hope was going to happen doesn't happen, we turn into Eeyore. Oh, yeah, I'm a sad boy. Nobody likes me, you know. And the deal is, is when we say no one loves me, who are we saying doesn't love us? God. No one wants to be with me. No one will ever marry me. My life will never be happy. I'll never have any children. I'll never have a good job. What are we saying? God doesn't love you. God doesn't want good things for you. And you're going to go without because no one is watching and nobody cares. That is not true. And when we talk like that, we sin against God. We're often guilty of thinking dumb things like this because we're proud. We look at something and we declare, this is wrong. I've heard people say, if there was a God in heaven, then this wouldn't happen to little children. I've heard people say that. I'm telling you, they should watch out. And if you're saying it, you should watch out. Like Peter, he blurts out, "Uh, you're not washing my feet. Right? He's, Jesus is about to do this most wonderful, beautiful thing to him. And he says, no, you're not. Like Peter, again, even after he came through a great deal of repentance, God sends him a vision and a sheet comes down with unclean animals. And God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And what does he say? Not so, Lord. I mean, do we say that to God? 
you know, you're confronted with God's word and you know what you should do. And you go, I'm not doing that. Not so, Lord, I'm not eating that. And God says, yeah, yeah, you are. <laughs> you know, this is how we sin. We're like this. I know you told me to get up and eat these animals, but I'm not going to do it. Eating unclean animals isn't right. As if we're going to tell God, right? God often does things we think that he shouldn't do, that he wouldn't do if he cared about us, but he does them and they are good and right and just whether or not they seem to be to us. How many of you have been in prayer? You know, you took that loved one from me. This wasn't right. You shouldn't have done this. You took them from me. Really? Is God unjust? Does he, do, does he not care? Does his word not say that all things come to us? Come because what? Because he loves us and because he's using them to prepare us to be with him in eternity. It's bad enough to think things in our hearts, but we really cross another line when we say them out loud and when we say them in front of other people. And this is what David did. Now, fortunately, as he heard the very words escape out of his mouth, his tender conscience rebuked him and sorrow began to fill his heart immediately. That's why he wrote Psalm 39, to remember not to do this again. He, to remember how he thought he stood strong and he could not be moved by this sin, but he really needed to have his heart tamed if he wanted to be able to tame his mouth. As we move into verse 4, David's lament begins. And this is really a great picture of what it should happen when we sin. When we sin, our repentance should be, we should grieve what we've done. This is why when you deal with people in sin and they're not sorry, they're like, well, yeah, everybody sins. What are you mad about? I mean, that's not repentance. When, when people sin and they know it's wrong, they grieve for their sin. It's worth noting when godly men and women sin, God uses even their sins to draw them nearer to him. It's our humbling that causes us to shrink down to our proper size in our own eyes. And God begins to loom above us as he should in his holiness. Verse 4. Lord, make me to know my end. He's like, how long am I going to live? Why was he saying this to God? He's like, I don't deserve to live. God, maybe you're just going to kill me because I'm so horrible. And I've just done bad. I probably deserve to die. What is this, guys? This is humbly. He's just like, I don't know. What is the measure of my days? What is it that I may know how frail I am? He's, this is what, this is what our sins should do to us. Humility takes the place of David's pride and anger. We must go to the book of James again to a familiar passage that he wrote addressing the same topic. Oftentimes the shortest route from pride to humility, from perceived strength to the realization of our frailty is a near-death experience, a severe illness, but you know what runs a close third? Sin. We're just like, I thought I was strong. I thought I could resist this. I thought I could be a good man. And obviously I cannot. Hear James on the subject here from James chapter 4. We already heard James 3 talking about the tongue. Now we have this in James 4, the humility that comes. Go now, verse 13, James 4, 13. Go to now, 
You that say today or tomorrow we will go into this city and we will continue there a year and we will buy and sell and get grain and get gain. As you know, whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow for what is your life? <laughs> That's a good question. That's what David's going. What's my life? He tells him what it is. It is even a vapor. It appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Now, why would, why would God's word say that it's almost like I don't matter? Is that, it kind of sounds like that, right? What are you? You're like the grass. You spring up and you're burned in the sun and you're no more. Is God trying to say you don't matter? Is that really what is being said here? Is he saying that in comparison to me, into my greatness, in my holiness, in my power, yes, you're just like a little puff of air. You're just like a little wisp of smoke that escapes out of the front of the stove and you're gone. But yet you'll stand before God with your, you know, all swollen up like this. And we will rail against God as if we're something. Folks, we, sh- we should never talk to God like that. We should never, ever approach God in the pride of that we're somebody because he will remind you that your life is but a vapor and it too will pass. He says, there's a way to remember this. Quit saying you're going to do things. Just say, verse 15, what you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. And you know, we cut it off because we don't really like that. We just say, Lord willing, I'll be at the, I'll meet you there. And we don't go, Lord willing, God will let me live till tomorrow. And then I'll be there. We don't even say that. I don't know anybody that says that. But that's exactly actually what he says. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live. And we will do this or do that. I don't know anybody that says that. They'll go, Lord willing, I'll be at church next week. Nobody says, Lord willing, I'll still be alive next week. And I'll see you in church. What is the point of this? Why did James say to say this? Because we need to be reminded who we are. He loves us. We're important, but we certainly don't push ourselves into the face of God like proud men and women and say, I'm here. Take notice of me. I'm somebody. You know what? I'm going to judge you. God, you shouldn't have done that to me. You shouldn't have hurt me that way. You shouldn't let them do all of this horrible stuff in this nation that I live. Why? Because it hurts me and I don't like it. And, and if you really love me, you'd do this or that. What it sounds like the Israelites to me, right? You took us out of Egypt to leave us out here in the desert and die. David continues his musing about his mortality in verse 5. Behold, thou hast made my days as a handbreadth. My age is as nothing before me. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Does that sound familiar? Everything in a man's life is vanity? I thought somebody else is credited with that. Who who do you credit with that when you hear that statement? Everyone goes, yes, that's what Solomon says. Sounds like Solomon's dad said it before Solomon ever said it. Right? Verily, every man at his very best state is altogether vanity. Ecclesiastes, the book written by David and Bathsheba's son Solomon who became king of Israel after his father's death, is all about the subject. Uh, Ecclesiastes 1, 2 says, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The whole book is about how 
It's pointless. You, you, you live your life and you amass great wealth and then you die and you can't spend it when you're dead. <laughs> but yet, what do you do? You spent your whole life trying to build the pile. Why? So you can die and so somebody else can spend it. I always make jokes about people that spend money on really expensive cars. They're driving down the road and they paid $200,000 so I can look out at their car. They can't even see it. All they see is the steering wheel. You know, they may have a, a pretty thing on their dashboard, but, but this, you know, this Lamborghini or this Ferrari Testarossa, you know, I get to enjoy it. They paid the money and I get to go, man, isn't that pretty? You know, and they're inside. They can't even see it. I think it's very funny. You might be laughing at yourself. You might have wanted a Ferrari, you know. <laughs> Verse 6, surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heaps up riches and he knows not who shall even gather them. It sounds like David knew about this before Solomon ever talked about it. Solomon explored this on his own, even though his father had taught him this. You know, sometimes we just have to learn things on our own experiences. Mom and dad go, uh, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. No, 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 no. Hey, I got to teach you this. I got And you're like, you know, you might be stupid like that, but not me. I'm like, son, no, no, you really, really want to do this. I mean, you'll have more time in your life right now than you'll ever have in your life. And you're like, I'm totally busy. I'm occupied 24-7. You're going to regret it. You have all this time. Do something with it. Do something beautiful. Your whole life can be built on it. I got all the time in the world. Solomon had to learn himself. Sometimes we just cannot be taught things. Most of us will not fully drink the wealth that Solomon did. So we might just chase the vanity of thinking that we can catch it too. We'll think if we do, we'll be happy or fulfilled. You know, None of us will probably, probably no one in our church will own a, you know, a 2020 Lamborghini or if they even make them, I don't even know. But, uh, but the deal is, is because we can't live it out because we can never get that much money. We still think, well, no, no, no. I just need a little bit more and then I'll be happy. Solomon pursued it like few others. We heard about it in our Old Testament reading at the Queen of Sheba, right? First Kings 10, it was a true report that I heard with my own land. That's Queen of Sheba said. I heard about King Solomon. I heard about all of his wealth. I heard about the incredible things that surround him. I heard about it all. Howbeit, I did not believe it until I came and with my eyes I had seen it and behold, the half was not even told. So he had all of that. And what, what was his conclusion in the end, Beetle? His conclusion was, you can have all that and it doesn't mean a hill of beans. How do I know? Because I had all of that. Solomon was a multi-billionaire by any standards of today's measure of wealth. And you know what he said? I had everything there was to have, and it wasn't anything. Ecclesiastes 2, 4 through 11. I made great works. I built me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made gardens and orchards. I planted trees of them of all fine. I made pools of water. Uh, the water therewith, the wood, but... Trees were growing. I got servants, maidens, servants born in my house. Great possessions, great small cattle. I, there was no one greater than me. I gathered silver and gold and treasure of the kings of the provinces. And I got men singers and women singers and delights of the sons of men. He had his own band. 
who sang the hymn only. We, we think we're amazing because we have, you know, earbuds. He had the people themselves live at his house and sing just for him. That'd be even better than earbuds, wouldn't it? He said, so I was great. <laughs> Could you imagine writing this down? So I was great. I was increased more than all that were before me. Also, my wisdom remained before me. I was wise and I was great and I was rich and I had everything anybody ever is trying to get out there. Whatsoever my eyes desired, I did not even keep it from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. My heart rejoiced in all of my labor and this was my portion of my labor. And then I looked at all the works that my hands had wrought and the labor that I had labored to do and behold, it was vanity and vexation of the spirit and there was no prophet under the sun. Sounds like Solomon got to be a whole lot richer than David ever did. And he found out what did it lead him to? It lead him to go. And you know what? And I finally got there and it is heaven to just have it all. He goes, no, I finally got there. And at the end of the road, it just made me sad to know I had spent all my time trying to get that when what I really needed was something else. See in this Verse 7, David comes to understand this, but there's one thing worthy of our hope and sure than the sunrise itself. Verse 7, and now, Lord, what wait I for? <laughs> what am I waiting for? I already have it. There are some people that go, oh, when I get married or when I get this job or when I get this new house or when I get a puppy, all right, when I get that thing, when my life changes, then I will be. You know what you'll find out? You won't be. Your hope is in the Lord. He is the sure thing. David comes to know that there's nothing that will ever he will ever have in this life, not people, not stuff, that will ever compare to the matchless wonder of his Lord. Only in him is their hope and salvation and joy. Verse 8, deliver me from my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. David continues his repentance, his lament of his sin. In repentance, he calls on God to save him. Let this be our heart cry today as we are confronted by our sins, the sins of our mouths against others and against God. We have certainly opened our mouths in sinful complaints, no less egregious than the Israelites who complained against God for the manna that God had sent them. In faithlessness, he had brought them into the desert to die in some unknown way. That's what they thought. Perhaps saying that God was like this. David was complaining against God for something that was going on. Let us repent of being rebellious children who rail against a loving father who has done what faithful fathers do and offered us the correction that we deserve. Verse 5 through 6 from Hebrews 12. Have you forgotten my exhortation which speaks unto you of children? My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither faint when you are rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens or scourges every son he receives. David, no doubt, was complaining because God was disciplining him. He was bringing some painful, difficult thing into his life. And as a result, he was not enjoying it. 
He says in verse 9, I was dumb and I opened not my mouth. Now we talked about this a moment ago. He was silent when he thought he wasn't going to say anything. But this is a different kind of quietness. There's the pretend quietness we think we're enjoying when we're like going, right? And then there's that other kind of quietness. When we realize we sin, we've realized we've let God down. We realize we're weak. We realize we're nothing. We realize we, we had been lifted up in pride and now we're humbled. And there is the silence of humility that's like this. You're almost in disbelief that you were so stupid to begin with. The rod of goodness healed the sinful heart of David. I would liken this to the child who no matter what good you do offer them, or even what punishment you bring, they never stop to spew forth complaints. Some people, you know, you get them an ice cream, but it wasn't the right flavor. And, you know, you, you do this thing for them, but it wasn't good enough. And they're always complaining about it. You know, I don't have what other kids have. They got, they got to go here. They got to do this, but I never got to. And then there's the others. You discipline them. How many people... Discipline your children and then your children complain at you the whole time. I didn't do anything. I can't believe you're punishing me. I never said anything. I can't believe it. How many? Come on. I need some waivers out here. I need some waivers. Some, maybe some parents who need to just, just say it just so you feel better today. That's right. You know. Oh, wow. We got some, we got some serious waivers out here. Praise God. Hallelujah. I'm just going to let that rest for a minute, right? And so, you, and there, oh, wow, I got two hands. Wow, okay. And so, I can't believe Let me tell you what this means. It means they need more discipline. Just a little, this is a little clue from a guy who maybe lived just a few more years with children. As long as they rail against me and continue to say, but I didn't do anything. You punished me unjustly. I didn't do anything. That's when I know they need more. And God does that too. When we continue to complain, you know what God will do? Gives us more discipline. Because if I love them, as much as I'm not enjoying discipline, I know more is necessary. So do you know how you know you're done? When they're quiet. When their mouth is shut. When they're quit going, blah, 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 blah. And now they're quiet. What are they? They're at the end. At the very end, they're done. That's what happened with David. David said, I was dumb. He get, came to the end of God's discipline. He's, he's repentant. And now he's sitting there like the quiet child that got the whooping it needed and complained and then he got more whoopings. And when he was done with that, he was quiet. There's a calm silence of repentance. David is now silently, he's not silently brooding, ready to explode as he was when he was mad at God unjustly, when he was complaining about his God, he has found rest in the good chastisement of a father who loved him enough to continue his correction for as long as it was necessary. Is that what you want? You want God to just keep it up and keep bringing the rod of correction upon you? Is that what you need? Keep it coming, keep it coming. Verse 10, remove your stroke away from me for I am consumed by the blow of your hand. You ever spank your kid with your hand? Some people say never do that. God does. 
David prays for the affectionate hand of God to come to him and pull him close in love. Stop whipping me, Lord. Stop chastising me, Lord. You've beat me down and you've helped me in my pride to realize who I am. And you might go, well, this doesn't sound nice. Well, correction is certainly not pleasant. The Bible's very plain about it. In fact, it's not pleasant at all. But discipline leads to love and closeness and affection. That's why even abusive parents oftentimes have a deep, close relationship with their children because at least they care enough to pay attention to them and whoop them or discipline them when they need it. Unfortunately, they do it wrong and that should not be. But those parents who let their, you think you're loving your child when you let it do whatever, 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 that's not loving. That's, that's is, that is as unloving as too harsh a discipline. It is hard to get that right uh, that right middle road on there, but you got to strive for it. David prays for the affectionate hand of God would pull him close in love. It's where discipline leads. It's not, discipline is not an end in itself. Without the love and affection that follows, what has happened to us is only punishment. You know, we don't deal out punishment to our children. We're not trying to get them back for having been bad and make them pay. Is that what Jesus does for you? Who pays for your sins? Do you? Or does Jesus? Everybody say, Jesus pays for my sins. Don't make your children pay for their sins. You did this bad and you're about to get that bad. It's not what God does with you. Amen? Without the love and affection that follows, it's only punishment. We do not deal out punishment to our children to make them pay for defying us. We offer them correction to lead them in repentance as God does for us. We do not deal with our children to hurt them for not honoring us. We help them to honor God by leading them to honor us. Verse 11, I know we're winding up here. When thou with rebukes dost correct man for the iniquity, thou makest his beauty to consume away like a moth. Surely every man is vanity. Once again, he's going... You know what discipline did for me? It helped me to realize I wasn't the most beautiful thing in the universe. It helped me to remember that you are, O oh Lord. Don't kill me, God, but help me to realize my place. Help me to be humble. Help me to understand how frail I am and how fleeting the world is, but how enduring your majesty and power are. And in the last two verses, we see David pouring out his heart, grieving unto God as a offering of God to him. And I'm going to read this passage in Psalm 51. It's a few verses long, but it is the most, it is the best example I have seen in scripture of what a heart needs to do to be repentant. And I'm not going to preach on it forever. I'm, I'm going to read through it and maybe make a few comments, but I got to read Psalm 51. You just have to do it here. David is basically saying, and he's saying this uh, in verse 11. But Psalm 51 says it more. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgression and my sin 
is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desires truth in the inward parts. In the hidden parts shalt thou make me to know thy wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. I think you kind of got to pause right there. Wait, God disciplined him so much he broke his bones. I mean, we would never want to break the bones of our children for sure. But apparently what David is saying is that God's discipline was so rough on him in this situation. It was like a bone crushing blow. They were not love taps. But he said, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. David's like, if you've got to almost kill me to crush my pride, do it. Because what I don't want to lose is you, O Lord. What I don't want to lose is your presence with me. I don't want that. And if you've got to kill me, almost kill me to get me to that place, then do it. How many of you want to be used by God? How many of you would even pray a prayer like this? Created me a clean heart, O God. Renewing me a right spirit. Cast me not away from thy presence. Do you see what David doesn't want to lose? Not his respect, not his post as a king, not his status in the community. He does not want to lose the love of his God and the closeness with him. Is that how you live your life? Is that what you want? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Uphold me with a free spirit, and I will teach transgressors thy way. Sinners shall be converted to thee. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. I need someone to plug this into that. It's dying over there. And I will sing aloud of thy righteousness, O Lord. Open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. And this is the part, really the main part I wanted to read. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show thy praise. Thou desires not sacrifice, or I would give it. Thou delights not in burnt offerings, else I would have done those. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. You know, sometimes for us ever to be able to offer God these praises, we have to have our spirits broken. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O Lord, you won't despise that. Why? Because he made it. God broke my heart. It's the best thing he ever did. For me, I had a proud heart and God crushed it. You might say you still have one. Well, God knows what heart I have. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou will not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shall thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. What are the sacrifices of righteousness, people of God? They are the broken and the contrite and humble and repentant heart of people who know their God is great and they are not. I'll wind up by reading these last two verses and then I'm going to read the whole psalm and we'll be done. Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with thee, a sojourner and as all my fathers were. Spare me, O God, that I may recover strength before I go hence and be no more. Does he sound like a proud man anymore? Or is he saying, oh God, just let me live. And even if it's only for a little longer, oh God, forgive me. I'm going to read all of Psalm 39. Hear its message. This is not a contrived message I've supported with scripture. This is what Psalm 39 says. Let it speak to us today. 
I said, I will take heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth a bridle while the wicked is before me. I was dumb with silence. I held my peace even from good. But my sorrow, my sorrow was stirred within me. My heart was hot within me. And while I was musing, fire burned. And then I spake. Ah! I spake with my tongue. Oh, Lord, make me to know my end. The measure of my days. What is it that thou may know how frail I am? Behold, thou hast made my days as a handbreadth. My, my eyes is nothing before thee, O Lord. Verily man at his very best state. It's altogether vanity. Surely every man walks in vain. Surely they're disquieted in vain. He heaps up riches and he knows not who will gather them. And now, Lord, oh, what am I waiting for? My hope is in thee. Deliver me from my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I was dumb and I opened not my mouth because thou did these things in me. Remove the stroke away from me. I am consumed by the blow of thy hand. When thou with rebukes corrects a man for iniquity, thou makes his beauty to consume away like a moth. Surely every man is vanity. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, O Lord. For I am a stranger in thee and a sojourner, as all my fathers were. O spare me that I may recover strength before I go hence and be no more. Let us pray. Lord, obviously, someone here today needs to repent. I pray that Psalm 39 leads them in a contrite and brokenhearted prayer of repentance and a life of repentance. That, Lord, they don't need to be humbled by your harsh judgment, but that they would humble themselves today. That if they would judge themselves today, they would not be judged. Oh, Lord God, let the person know who you're speaking to today, how they need to repent of their pride and their railing against you, their complaints against you. Lord, help them to see that their life is but a handbreadth, that their, that their very thoughts and desires are vain, but that you are good and that you love them and that you indeed have brought them right here for such a time as this. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said.